Hi everybody, and welcome to Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities, and gender equality. I'm Stephen Burrell, and as always, I'm here with Sandy Rexton. Hi Sandy. Hi Stephen. For today's episode, we have with us Jackson Katz. Jackson is very well known internationally in the field of gender equality and work to prevent violence against women, especially work with men and boys. And in 1993, he co-founded Mentors in Violence Prevention in the United States, which is a widely influential gender-based violence prevention program, working in settings such as sports and the military. And Jackson also has a, a PhD in cultural studies and education. Jackson has also created a series of educational documentaries, uh, including Tough Guys, The Bystander Moment, and The Man Card. And he's also written two great books, uh, one called The Macho Paradox, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help, and also uh, Man Enough, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and the Politics of Presidential Masculinity. Um, so yeah, Jackson's done a huge range of impressive work. And so we wanted to focus in particular today on the topic of his more recent book, as this is an area which we haven't really explored that much on the podcast yet in terms of things like politics in, in the United States, where there's clearly a lot of uh, issues and debates going on currently. So hi, Jackson, and thank you so much uh, for speaking to us today. Well, hello, and uh, it's great to be with you, uh, Stephen and, and Sandy. I think you have a great podcast and I'm happy to be and proud to be part of it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you so you. much. <laughs> um, so yeah, to start off with, I suppose we wanted to ask you um, about something which is often talked about, you know, in the media, public discourse, which is this idea that men are kind of facing a kind of crisis of masculinity, you know, in countries like the United States or here in the UK or in Europe or other parts of the world. Um, so yeah, what, what do you make of this kind of common assertion? Like, do you think it is uh, that simple or actually are we talking about particular groups of men, you know, being affected quite differently by, you know, shifting economic and social patterns and dynamics? Well, this is like the the big question, isn't it? We'll start right, we'll, we'll jump in right away, won't we? Yeah, sorry about that. Um, we will. <laughs> I think that as, as, as you know, and as those of us who do this kind of more generalized work in masculinities, I think you can say that masculinity or masculinities are always in crisis. It's complicated by, you know, social stratification by race and ethnicity by global north and global south and yes we can make general statements about masculinity and as a singular construct but it's not really such a thing there's all these different levels that you have to account for but i would say that there are some macro trends in the world and certainly in the united, in the united states that are worth looking at and, and I'll, I'll give you maybe one way to answer your question to get us to get specific is to talk about um what isn't talked about um, in the mainstream conversation and even on certain in certain elements of more progressive uh, both intellectual and academic and uh, popular discourse about social change over the past uh, number of years or even decades like so in the United States there's this narrative that Trumpism and the rise of the right is a um, is a function of anxiety among the white majority population about the increased ethnic and racial diversity of the of the population. There's a demographic shift that's been happening and it's inexorable. And you have a, a number of white people who are obviously unsettled by this and and who are angry. Many of them have racial resentment and, and the right has mobilized around this. And the result was, among other things, Trump was elected president. Uh, un, un, unlikely and I think one of the greatest tragedies in American history, but that's my editorial comment. Mm -hmm. But Trump was elected in 2016. Now, the January 6th insurrection at the United States Capitol 
so many people talk with the way they talk about that, both in real time and in even retrospect, is that it was kind of a white riot, like that white people, white people were so angry and that they're going to take back their country, if you will. Um, and so racial animus and racial resentment was this, the frontline story about the motives for the white riot at the Capitol January 6th. Among the people who are arrested for criminal behavior on January 6th, 93% were white, but 86% were men. Mm -hmm. And almost nobody refers to that second statistic, that 86% were men. Mm -hmm. This is a very common problem and a common omission in the discourse about what's happening both in Europe, in the UK, in the United States, about resistance to and anger about immigration and racial integration is that it's not just that, it's that, that's important, obviously an incredibly important piece. It's also men who are threatened by feminism, who are angry about being pushed off center stage, who are angry about the loss of cultural centrality, both in the family and in the larger society. And it's white men largely in, you know, Europe, if we're gonna say Europe and the United States, it's white men, but it's not white people, it's white men. And the men piece of that, is, is often left aside. And I think it's critically important to talk about how men have been decentered by feminism and by the and, and the heteronormative heterosexual men decentered by the LGBTQ revolutions of the past 50 years, because this is an incredibly important part of the backlash against progress. And a lot of men are in a, you could call it a crisis stage of what does it mean to be a man? And I know that people around the world, outside the United States, and certainly in the global North, outside the United States, Think about the gun problem in the you know the, in the United States as like an out of control crazy gun culture that we have, which by the way, is true. We do have an out of control crazy gun culture, and there's millions, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Americans who agree with that assessment, mm -hmm. even though we live here. <laughs> to me, the gun issue is all about masculinity. It's all about white masculinity, and not not just white masculinity, because again, we could talk about young black men using guns to mm. establish their manhood and in ways that they can't do with, through other means, you know. But 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 the 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 gun rights, so-called gun rights movement, is so much of this is about. I'm a man and I'm going to protect myself and I'm going to protect my family. And damn it, you're not going to take away my ability to be a man and having a gun and, and being armed so I can defend myself, my family and my community is, is a constitutive part of being a man. And you're not going to take that from me. It's not about some abstract like legal or constitutional principle, at, in my opinion, at play. It's a core issue of men's identity, and especially in the case of the gun rights movement, white men's identity. And yes, I think that this is all part of what's what's happening. And I do think that a lot of men are really at sea beyond this notion of leaning back into this notion of protector provider, like fulfilling the traditional quote unquote male role. And 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 with when you have constant, it, it, certainly online, this is the case, sort of feminist criticism and critique of male centrality of white men's power of white men's you know toxicity i think you have lots of men millions of men and young men who are like okay what does it mean to be a man anymore if i believe all the, this sort of feminist critique how am i supposed to feel about myself in a positive way and then when you hear when you introduce the jordan petersons of the world and the andrew tates of the world and and the donald trumps of the world in each case they have a different way of articulating this but they're essentially saying to men you matter 
we love you, we respect you. In fact, you're the people who built Western civilization, you know, white men in particular. We, we have open arms to embrace you. And if you look at the Sweden Democrats, look at alternatives for Deutschland, you look at the, 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 the Brexit movement in the, in the UK, it's filled with this, both subtextually and overtly, narratives to men and white men that they still matter and they need to assert themselves because if they don't, the culture is going down the, the tubes. And the way that plays out for individual boys and young men and men is, do you want a sense of fulfillment? Do you want a sense of importance that you matter? Or do you want to be just the, the, the cause of all the problems in the world? And if they see it in those binary terms, and a lot of young men who, are, who live online see the narrative in those binary terms, either I'm embraced by the right or I'm disdained by the left, for lack of a better, you know, more granular analysis, I'm going to go with the people who are who are respecting me and who are supporting me and who are um, embracing me rather than rather than having to walk on these in these landmines on these landmines of trying to narrowly figure out what is okay to say and not to say and do I feel good about myself or bad about myself. So yes, I do think there we could we could say that there's a bit of a crisis, um, and I've been focusing on obviously in this long-winded answer. <laughs> white men. But then, of course, if we break it out, we can start talking about the ways in which men of color and young men of color and, and, and that even that category needs to be broken down, mm-hmm. have themselves issues and anxieties and doubts and concerns and questions about what it means to be a man. And because I deal with violence so much in my work, in my writing, in my thinking, in my speaking, in my, you know, everything, um, violence is an incredibly important way in which men understand their manhood, whatever they, whatever stance they take in relation to violence, you know, mm. it's such an incredibly important piece of the discussion about manhood is violence mm-hmm. and uh, both violence done to, to men, violence done by men, um, structural violence, as well as individual violence. I mean, do you want to say a bit more about, about how that kind of applies more, perhaps quite specifically in the US context at the moment, you know, with the situation obviously with Donald Trump having, you know, still having, despite the various kind of legal issues he's facing, um, you know, still having a very large base of support, especially, uh, you know, perhaps among white working class men, as you said. And and also, yeah, given what you were saying, I mean, how, how should we then respond to that? I mean, how would you, if you were, you know, to talk to some of these, you know, young men, for example, um, you know, what would you say to them about like the relevance of feminism to their lives, given given the, the viewpoints which a lot of them seem to be influenced by from people like Donald Trump, I suppose? Well, sure. I, I have a brief anecdote from my recent experience might be again, it might be uh, an angle into the to that question. I was I was on a panel with a group of um, Democratic Party strategists, racially diverse group and gender diverse group. But they were all people who are in the struggle, if you will, in the work uh, of, you know, representing or, or um, you know, advising Democratic candidates for running for office in, in various ways. And and the discussion was about, you know, masculinities and politics. And I was saying, and, and there was a couple other people who were agreeing with me, but I was saying the Democratic Party has not done a good job. And I, I would say that that's a kind way of putting it over the past several decades at responding to um, white men. And as a result, if you look at presidential elections in the United States, the, the Republicans have been just just running the table with white male voters. And, and if you look at breakdown by class or you know education level as a proxy for class, 
it's just overwhelming. I mean, I mean, for example, what Trump beat Hillary Clinton like 71 to 23 among high school educated white men, 48 point, 48 points. And white men make up almost a third of the American electorate. And so the only way that Democrats can get elected in the United States to, to national office, like, for example, the presidency, if you're going to lose a huge percentage of the white male vote and and they, by the way, in, in the in the 2016, he also beat Trump beat Hillary Clinton by 14 percentage points among college educated white men. But again, 48 percent among high school educated white men. The only way that you can win the presidency is if you have huge turnouts among women and people of color and the LGBTQ community and such. Um, and that, that can happen. And by the way, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. So, I, I mean, I, she did get three million more votes than Donald Trump, even though she lost in our crazy electoral system. But the point is, uh, lots of white men are responding to something that the Republican Party is saying and offering and, and narrating. And the Democrats haven't done a good job of this. And I was saying this in this, you know, panel discussion, you know, it was virtual. And the pushback that I was getting from some of the Democratic Party strategists was, so what are you saying we should do? Just copy what the Republicans are doing and just, you know, hyper masculine sort of ads. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying. It's not one or the other. It's that we have to take it, pay attention to what the Republicans have been doing and saying and why that's resonating with mm. white male voters. And if we're just going to ignore it and pretend that it's not happening and then not think of ways that we can creatively address what, what, how white men are experiencing the political world and the political moment and everything else, we're just writing them off. Because a lot of people in the Democratic Party and a lot of more progressive types in the United States beyond the Democratic Party are so cynical about white men, right? They're so, they're, their attitude is white men are a lost cause, right? They're, they're like, we don't really, and again, I'm, I'm only overstating slightly for effect. So I know there's a little more nuance to that, but it's, it's like, why are we going to spend our time trying to get white men to, 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 to you? They're the ones who have the most to gain by maintaining the current system. Why would they sign on to a sort of transformative progressive agenda when, when they're the ones who have been in charge, et cetera? And again, some of that lacks such nuance around class, for example, and about how many white men are just, you know, homeless and, and, and completely, you know, disenfranchised in many different ways from quote-unquote power mm. and you, you guys know this i mean obviously this is what gets complicated because why when you look at the pyramid white men are at the top of the pyramid overwhelmingly corporate power political power cultural authority and influence but then there's a ton of men at the bottom of the pyramid including tons of white men who don't at all see themselves as privileged or powerful or any and in many ways they're not privileged or powerful and and they hear this narrative about white male privilege and white male centrality and see them just their their experience is being kind of just erased right and they the, the subtleties of the kind of grad school you know seminars that we might engage in are lost on them and and many others in the public conversation and so when you're talking to these democratic party strategists who the only thing they can think of when you mention that we need to talk about what's going on with white men and how the republicans have successfully appealed to them is we're not going to mimic what, you know, the hyper-masculine, you know, shooting guns in political ads, which is a very common thing in the mm. States, you understand, on the right. Mm. They'll, they literally are shooting things in ads to prove that how, number one, how tough they are, how manly they are, and how much they respect the Second Amendment. It's so, it's absurd on, to the level of, like, it's, it's beyond satire, mm. but it's true. It's really happening. I mean, and, and you know, candidates, women and men, almost all white, 
often have a, another, there's another thing that's been much more happening in the last uh, few years where they'll send out Christmas cards, you know, political figures with their whole family carrying AR-15s in front of a Christmas tree. Yes. As if like, like we're, we're all celebrating Christmas in a real Christian way with our semi-automatic weapons of mass destruction. That's very Christ-like, don't you think? But that's, but it's literally become normalized. That's like, it's not even any, anymore. It's not even, um, there's no shock anymore to that. It's more just like part of the landscape. Anyhow, so that's. I think you said, you said this is this is a transition that's been happening over the over decades. Is that right? Because, you know, the Republicans have been directly targeting the white male vote, and you know, shifting their approaches in order to achieve the kind of position that you are now describing to us. That that's right, isn't it? And I think it's what you describe in in um, your film Mancard. It's true. The process that 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 ended up with or the election of Trump in uh, 2016 was a, a half a century, you know, of a process. It wasn't just, it didn't just come out of nowhere. And in, in the man card, as you suggest, Andy, um, we looked at it, we looked at the, the history, the modern history of the, of the presidential politics, starting in uh, Richard Nixon's presidency in 1968 and then in 72. And Richard Nixon figured out, and there was other people, you know, intellectuals and journalists who were thinking about and writing about this. It wasn't just like a, a brilliant insight by Richard Nixon himself, but what he figured out was, one of the ways to break down the New Deal coalition, the Franklin Roosevelt coalition that had the Democratic Party coalition that had produced so much progressive legislation and social change, although there was racist elements to the New Deal coalition that have to be critiqued. Um, but the way to break down the New Deal coalition that had given the Democratic Party and progressive politics more generally so much energy for the for the previous you know 50 plus years, I'm talking about now Nixon in the late 60s. The way to peel back white voters as from the Democratic Party coalition was, among other things, the, the what, what was called Nixon's Southern strategy, which was to appeal to white racial resentment, especially in the South, with white voters who were resentful that the Democratic Party backed Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and signed, you know, mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson signed the, the Civil Rights Act the voting and the Voting Rights Act in the mid-60s. And immediately what began to happen was that the, the Democratic Party was the dominant party in the South. And increasingly, white people started moving away from the Democratic Party and joining, becoming both independent and then increasingly becoming re Republican voters because of their racial resentment and the, and the identification of the Democratic Party with the white backlash against the civil rights movement. But what Nixon also figured out, and this is what I, we talk about in the man card, is that white men, not just white people, but white men were feeling um, lots of both racial resentment, but also increasing anxiety about growing challenges to, to traditional heterosexual men's power and, and cultural centrality. And this didn't happen overnight. I mean, this was a process. But when G George McGovern, for example, when he ran, George McGovern was a United States senator from South Dakota, who was a labor guy, a progressive guy, but he was also a, a, a decorated uh, war uh, veteran, fighter pilot in World War II. But in 1972, he also ran on a platform calling for amnesty for people who evaded the draft in Vietnam. He called for an end to the United States military um aggression in Vietnam and a, and, a, and a radical cutback of the, the, the military budget. 
And he was attacked as being a complete sellout and a soft, wimpy, like, you know, person who's a captive of the hippies and, and, and feminists and other anti-war, you know, haters of America, if you will. And there was a real class-based clash that was that sort of coalesced as well in the late 60s, early 70s between college educated, you know, anti-war protesters, many of them who had, you know, long hair um, and, and were clearly sort of rejecting a certain kind of traditional white male persona versus a lot of the working class white men who many of them didn't have long hair. Many of them were serving in the military or, or were more traditional in their, in their gender and racial uh, attitudes and, and sexual attitudes, if you will. And so and it's impossible to overstate how big a, a shift the 60s mm-hmm. and 70s created, not just in the United States, obviously, as you know, in the UK and, and beyond. But but and my I think my contribution to that and others contribution to that sort of analysis, that historical analysis is that there is a really important gender piece to this. It's not just it's not just a critique of traditional beliefs or the feminist critique of of how things were being upended by by feminist challenges to, uh, you know, male power, if you will, or male supremacy or what have you, or patriarchy or whatever you're going to call it is such an important piece of this. Anyhow. Nixon figured this out, that the way that if you could speak to white working class men's, both their racial grievance and their the sense that they matter, they still matter, then you're going to have, you're going to pull away elements of the New Deal coalition from the Democrats and pull them over to the Republicans. And so one of the ways that Nixon did that, he couldn't give them better wages because that would interrupt the, the profits of the ownership class that controls the Republican Party, and you, you, you're not going to go mm. against the the ownership, right? So how do you what do you say what do you give these men mm. if you can't give them better wages and better benefits? Well, you can give them cultural recognition. You can say they're the silent majority that built this country. They're the working men who put on a hard hat and went to work for their families and worked hard and they, they played by the rules and they, they can't stand it when these people, these long-haired hippies and these others who are you know disrespectful and they don't um, appreciate all the great things about this country. And um, we Republicans, we are on your side. We care about you. We think that you're the people that built this country. And if you notice, Fast forwarding to the 2016 election and then beyond, Donald Trump in almost every public speech that he makes, and his speeches are essentially, he's, he's an insult comic, right? I mean, he's, he's literally a performer, and his, he's, he's at his best when he's in front of an audience, not, a, not in a traditional political speech kind of way. He's, he's like, a, he's an insult comic. And one of the, one of the things that he does in his, in his stand-up routine is, is he name-checks working class white male professions and not not just white male but i mean he he, he's thinking about the white man and 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 sort of you know but when he says we love our firefighters we love our police we love our steel workers we love our coal miners and 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 they huge cheers and in other words it doesn't matter that he's cutting taxes on the wealthy and eviscerating programs that help people transition from, for example, the manufacturing economy to the information age economy or anything like this. It doesn't matter. Policy is way too abstract for for that Mm. discourse, right? He's saying, we love you. We're on your side. You matter. And and one other thing, I'll just I'll just say this and I'll stop because I could, as you know, I could just (laughs) time. The Proud Boys, you've heard of the Proud Boys. Uh 
Okay. So Proud Boys are an extremist organization that by understanding what they're tapping into gives us great insight, not just to the extremes, but to the center, because the extremes often articulate things in a cruder, more overt way than are going to be articulated in the center of power. So, so I think it's really interesting to look at right-wing extremist organizations for that reason. Why do you have the name the Proud Boys? Because pride is often, and is certainly in this case, an assertion that comes out of a, a feeling of shame. Because the need to assert pride is often a response to having been shamed which is why you have gay pride marches and, and LGBT pride, because it's like, we're not gonna be ashamed of ourselves. We're gonna walk down center of the street and be proud. Be, pride is an assertion in this case as a response to shame. So think about all the men and the white men who have been shamed and who feel a sense of being energized by we're proud to be men. Donald Trump, he might be a little crude, but you know what? He's not gonna back down. He's gonna say, we're, we're real men here. We're going to take this country back. We're going to be powerful. We're not going to be, we're not going to be fading into the, into the, into the, you know, sands of history. We're going to, America is going to come back and we're going to be the tough, strong, great country. And if you associate with that, if you become part of that movement, you're going to be enhanced. Your manhood is going to be enhanced. You're, you're going to walk with a little more spring in your step. And I think this is what's been happening for lots of white men in the United States is that Trumpism gave them a boost to their sense of themselves as men that they didn't feel that they had. And if we don't speak to that, and getting back to my, my critique of the Democratic Party people, and we're just going to ignore that and just say, well, let's just talk about bread and butter economic issues, and we're not going to play that cultural uh, mm. game, that identity politics game. You're losing. That You're kidding yourself. That's, that's the game that the Republican Party has been successfully playing, is white male identity politics. And they figured out how to speak to those men. And the last thing, last thing, because I, I really think it's important that I should just at least put this on the table. The rise of the white evangelical Christian movement mm -hmm. in the United States, starting in the 50s and 60s, I mean, it's not a, it didn't just start in the 50s and 60s, but the, the increasing politicization of it, first mm -hmm. because of race, because of in the, in the white South, the need a lot of white parents felt the need to create Christian schools to prevent their kids from going to school in the public schools, which were becoming increasingly desegregated by federal orders and everything else. So the rise of Christian evangelical schools in the South. So race was clearly part of the reason for the growth of the politicization of the evangelical community in the white evangelical community in the 1960s and 70s. But then with feminism, with the abortion rights um, ruling by the Supreme Court in 1973 that legalized uh, abortion um, in the United States, increasingly energy towards equal rights amendment and sort of feminist activism on the street and the legislature and the Supreme Court, the evangelical movement increasingly became the home of backlash against feminism and the gay rights, what we used to call the gay rights movement, right? The LGBTQ movement and evangelical Christianity became incre increasingly mm -hmm. politicized and very much at home in the Republican Party, for whom the issues of gender and sexual identity are front and center. They're not. They're not like peripheral issues. They're not. They're not even thinking about the economics. Okay. They're, they're the main driving force behind the political identity of the white Christian evangelical movement is the defense of white male patriarchal centrality and authority in the family and in the society. 
And the Republican Party, the plutocrats that run the Republican Party figured this out years ago, that we need their votes. And one of the ways to get their votes, again, we're not going to give them better wages because that's going to interrupt the profits of the ownership class. We're going to give them the cultural recognition and, and we're going to give them policy around rolling back women's rights and gay rights. And that's been happening right to this day. Right. And Donald right. Trump doesn't care about any of these issues ideologically. He's a complete con man who just knows where the votes are and where the, the cultural energy is and where the applause is coming from. And he's going to that. He would sell them out in a second if he if he knew that it was mm -hmm. going to advance his career. But he's a useful idiot. They, he's transactional. Everything about Donald Trump is transactional. But he's been he's been an incredibly important force for uh, for this backlash because of the the persona that he's been able to uh, cultivate over the years and the um, the shamelessness that he has and and, yeah. and and therefore therefore his ability to do things that other even other right wing politicians would be very cautious about doing Donald Trump just rushes right in yeah that's a great explanation of uh, both the history and the background and <laughs> and Trump's appeal as well and I, I wondered if you wanted to relate it also to um, your your book about presidential campaigns and you know uh, his approach to Hillary Clinton you know it all makes sense now you know the undermining of her as a female candidate you know portrayal of weakness vulnerability actually something you I don't think have mentioned the the media backing the right-wing media backing as well pushing candidates to adopt you know more hardline positions that there's a whole lot of other stuff alongside the components that you you mentioned there is i mean absolutely and the this the, the rise of right-wing media i mean mm. with the revocation of what was called the fairness doctrine back in 1987 under the reagan administration the fairness doctrine had to do with the the regulation of federal communications and that it was a doctrine within american political discourse for decades that you had to give equal time to competing political views when that was revoked in the 1987 under Reagan that that heralded the rise of right-wing talk radio so all these stations all these stations moved over from uh, from music formats and other formats to talk political talk and Rush Limbaugh became the most famous and the most influential if you will he was so influential I mean he died of cancer a few years back but he, he was his estimated audience was 15 to 20 million people a week hmm. and he set the tone this is before fox news by the way this is before the the so-called fox news i always say news in quotes because it's never been really news it's really it's a propaganda that's channel a, that's a very... bit like our gb news we have a gb <laughs> news channel and the, the element of news is <laughs> debatable at best that's right that's right and there are, there is there's a trial right now that they're facing a big lawsuit for you know deliberately lying about the election results and about the this dominion company's you know supposed malfeasance in stealing votes and things like that but and 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 fox news personalities were on the air literally knowing the truth and then lying to their audience because they knew that the audience wanted to hear them parrot the trump line that the election had been stolen that mm -hmm. Donald Trump had not lost the election, it had been stolen from him. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, so so the, yes, the rise of right-wing media, which is hugely influential here in the country, in the United States, first talk radio and then Fox News when it was created in 1996. This is Rupert Murdoch. Mm -hmm. uh, so Rupert Murdoch, obviously a big footprint in the UK and uh, Australia and, and, and mm -hmm. elsewhere in the English-speaking world. Mm -hmm. But um, Murdoch uh, hired, you know, Roger Ailes. And Roger Ailes was the founding chairman of Fox News Channel, got his start in politics. Roger Ailes approached Richard Nixon 
and said, Mr. Nixon, I can I, I can help you politically. Like I can help you uh, present yourself on television. And that began the career of Roger Ailes as a as an advisor, a TV advisor, a media advisor to Republican presidential candidates, because Roger Ailes is a brilliant thinker about the role of television and how to use television. And so, it's, again, it was just, none of this is a coincidence that Donald Trump was a, was somebody who knew how to manipulate media and how to, reality TV. And, and before that, the tabloids, he knew how to get attention. He knew how to create narratives that were interesting, memes. It, none of this is a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that Ronald Reagan was elected president. Ronald Reagan was not only a movie star in the in the 40s and the early 50s, but then he was a, a TV star with General Electric uh, television. He was a very, very polished TV persona and mm -hmm. and presence. This is all incredibly important in American political discourse. As you know, we have campaigns that last like two years. Mm. It's not this short time, and it's not about it's not about building support within the parliamentary sort of party. It's about going out to the masses through 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 media. You know, in a country of 30, 330 million people. So yeah, media is incredibly influential. One thing that you see in right wing media is incredible re reinforcement of traditional gender ideology. So men, for example, who are progressive, feminist or pro-feminist are mocked and ridiculed mercilessly in that space. Rush Limbaugh would just have contemptuous commentary about soft, wimpy men on the de Democratic side. They, they use the word wussification of America. They, they say that America has been wussified. And that's the, that's the phrase you hear over and over again on Fox. So at the same time as you have you have former military on there, you have um, frequently, but not just former military, you have right wing sort of hyper aggressive former military men, I'm talking about, um, as commentators. But then you have highly sexualized, hegemonically attractive uh, women and, and Roger Ailes, as you probably know, was a serial sexual harasser and abuser of women. He was creating a vision through Fox News of the world that he wanted to live in, which is white men make all the decisions. Women look pretty and do what they're told. And, you know, real men sit back and smoke their cigars. And, and one of the reasons why, for example, on Fox News, they have glass tables and the women wear skirts so you can see their legs. I mean, this is not none of it's you know, coincidental. This is just this is the business model. And you have millions of people. That's their currency. That's how they learn politics. That's how they narrate the day's events. And it's it's kind of horribly ironic as well, isn't it? What you were saying about this idea of like the wussification of America, given how widespread, how violent the situation is. You know, in terms of things like gun violence, but but also in terms of political violence, right? Like we are. It seems like we're seeing more and more political violence there. And and I suppose women in politics, you know, are being disproportionately targeted with that, aren't they? And uh, not just physical violence, but also things like misogyny and abuse online. I mean, I know you've written about, in other countries as well, like um, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and the kind of misogyny which she was increasingly being subjected to. And obviously she's now kind of has stepped down from being the prime minister there. Um, so, yeah, could you could you say a little bit more about that? You know, the impact that this has on women in politics and i suppose do you think there's anything that we as men um should be doing you know about that you know should we be speaking out more actively you know whether that is men in politics specifically or or more broadly in society you know what could we do about that sure no it's absolutely true and 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 steven your, your question gives me the opportunity to say i just started this new organization men for democracy right. and the whole idea of men for democracy is to give a voice to men who are not happy at all with the ways in which traditional or really cartoonish ideas about manhood have taken over 
so much of the political discourse. And I think we need men who are not just as individuals, but organized to, to fight back and say, not in my name. In other words, the way that you're saying that men need to take back our country, you know, white men need to take back our country. You don't speak for me. And I'm a man and I'm a white man. And I don't agree with that. And I'm going to say out loud that I don't agree with that. In fact, I think you're taking our country in the exact wrong direction of what we need to be doing. And one of the one of the things that's been happening increasingly in the states, but but not as you suggest, not just in the states, including in in New Zealand, but all but be, well beyond, including the UK, yeah. is attacks and not just on women in politics, it's feminist women. Mm. It's women who are nonconformist to the gender norms of male patriarchal control. So in other words, women who arise like the, you know, the Margaret Thatchers of the world and the right wing women of the world are not the ones who are really threatening to these right wing movements. It's, it's feminist women. It's women who are explicitly saying we need to create social policy and pr promote social policy that increases gender equity and gender equality and, 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 and challenges, you know, men's power in all these different realms. Mm -hmm. Those are the women who are the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, think about the analogy between the January 6th insurrection at the United States Capitol mm -hmm. and some of the insights of the domestic and sexual violence movements over the past, you know, half century. What they, what they, what the rioters did that day is they couldn't win a democratic election in peaceful terms, in small d democratic terms. Mm -hmm. well, so they decided to use violence to get what they couldn't get through democratic or peaceful means, right? Well, what is a man who's like a, in a heterosexual relationship who's physically abusive to his wife or his girlfriend? What is he doing? He's using force or the threat of force to gain or maintain her compliance if he can't get it in other ways. He's using force to get his way. This is what the political right is doing. If they can't win through democratic means, in other words, peaceful democratic process, they're going to take it by force. And this is, to me, subtextually, the, the debate about authoritarianism versus democracy is all about a sort of hyper-masculine reaching for power through violence over a more, what if you want to look at a, in binary terms, a more feminine, that's a more masculine way, a more feminine democratic process, a multilateral, like, for example, multilateral organizations like the UN, the right has historically hated them, in part because multilateralism is a form of, of distributing power more broadly, whereas authoritarian is sort of unilateral, we're just going to do what we need to do, we're not going to be constrained by this messy process where other people have a say. So democracy versus authoritarianism can easily be mapped along a, an axis of a gender binary, you know, masculine is authoritarian in this scheme and feminine is uh, democratic, you know? Um, so all of this is happening in American politics as, as we speak. But I think that lifting this to the surface and, and talking about it is a, is a really important first stage. And the, the attacks on women political candidates the, the misogynist attacks, whether it's online, verbal, whether it's death threats, rape threats, completely, totally unacceptable, or the actual physical violence and the threats of physical violence, like, for example, men at the United, in the United States showing up at rallies at the state houses of various states around the country, strapped on AR-15, you know, semi-automatic weapons with high capacity magazines, claiming that that's their right and that that's their assertion of a constitutional right when... What they're doing with that use of violent, sort of the show of violence, is suppressing other people's rights to free speech. Because a lot of people are afraid that if they come out to a political rally where the other side has guns 
and angry men with guns, they're, they're much less likely to publicly assert their, their First Amendment or their free speech rights because they're, they're obviously going to be intimidated. And, and that's how fascism works. In this case, through blunt physical force intimidating people's political organizing and political speech. And in particular, this the, the, the misogyny directed and the violent threats directed towards women in politics. We need to call that out. And we need, we need men, not just women calling it out and not just mealy mouth politicians saying we need to all, you know, respect the, you know, the, the rule of law. And oh, yes, we do. But we also need men saying, not in my name. You're not going to use violence to try to threaten and intimidate women because you're threatened by women's equality. We, I don't accept that. And as a man, I'm going to say that. And we need more men who are willing to say that. And, and, and this, that's the political moment that we're in. Mm. Yeah, and I, I mean, we have mentioned briefly already about the situation, the horrific situation in the US, really, in terms of like gun violence. Um, and you've written a lot in the past about how that connects to masculinity, actually. And, that, and that's something which just isn't, as you've said, it just is still not really being talked about, isn't it? Even though the vast, vast majority, like 98% of you know, people engaging in mass shootings and things like that are men, right? But that's just not something which seems to be talked about in the media or in politics. Um, so could you perhaps just briefly just say something about that? Like, why is that such an important link to be understanding and talking about? Um, and, and what more should be done in your view to try and tackle this kind of huge issue of, of terrible gun violence in the US? The gun violence issue accelerated in, in, in every way when in the late 90s, when um, in the spring of 1998, there was a string of school shootings in the United States. And then a year later, there was Columbine in the spring of 1999. We're, we're taping this in the same week as the anniversary of Columbine. It was like, I think, April 1999. And so I, I wrote a piece two weeks with my colleague Sut Jolly uh, in the Boston Globe newspaper, uh, two weeks after Columbine was called Missing the Mark. And it was about how we need to talk about gender at the heart of school shootings. This is This is 24 years ago. And even to this day, most of the discussion, mainstream conversation about school shootings is degendered. And yet men, boys and young men commit 99, over 99% of school shootings. Mass killings, it's 98%. School shootings, 99%. And I always say the single most important factor in school shootings is the gender of the perpetrator. It's the single most important factor. There's other factors that are important. And in fact, if you if you look at if there was, God forbid, a school shooting tomorrow, which there could be because they happen so often. Mm -hmm. But if there was a school shooting tomorrow, I know it's it's utterly predictable what the discourse in the mainstream in the United States will be about the, the causes of the shooting. And it's it's basically on one hand, mental illness, people saying that there's all these mentally ill people, young people, and we need better mental health services, early intervention, all of which, by the way, I agree with. And, and anybody that I know agrees that we need better mental health system. We need a radical reshifting of priorities, budgetary priorities. Anyways, that's one side of the discussion, mental illness. Mm -hmm. And the other side is guns, the availability of guns. And, and we have a country with 400 million guns. And we have all these uh, semi-automatic weapons with uh, high-capacity magazines that cause enormous destruction. And unless you get a handle on the gun availability, you're just kidding yourself. Okay. And almost nobody mentions that 99% over 99% of the shooters are boys and young men. And I often say to, as a thought exercise, imagine if 99% of the school shootings were done by girls. Would anybody be talking about mental illness and the availability of guns in the first instance before talking about the gender aspects? Hmm. 
It's absurd. Mm-hmm. Everybody would be talking about gender. Everybody mm-hmm. would be saying, what's going on with girls? What's going on with cultural attitudes mm-hmm. and, and ideologies of femininity? How do those, adi- those ideologies of femininity and narratives about femininity relate to these, these girls' actions? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everybody would be talking about that. But because it's boys and young men, which represent the dominant gender or sex it goes hidden. It goes unremarkable. Uh, and, and people will say, well, it's obvious. Everybody knows it. So why would you say it? Why do you need to say it? Everybody knows it's boys and young men. But my argument has been for 30 years, if you don't say it and you don't talk about it, then you're just going to go immediately to secondary issues and not talk about the central issue. What is? What are the narratives about manhood in the United States? Why do so many boys who are school shooters, for example, the ones who survive and, and can actually talk about it, or the ones who, who planned their school shooting as a suicide murder, a murder-suicide. In other words, they murder a bunch of people, then they kill themselves or they're killed by the police, which was the intent in the first place, who left written testimonies, manifestos and other things. We know this this is not like just me theorizing. This is like we have data for 20-something years. And so many of these young men are basically saying they're rewriting the narrative. They're taking back control. They're not going to be bullied. They're not going to be ostracized. They're not going to be mocked and ridiculed. They're going to be the ones who are reclaiming it's a redemptive use of violence which has deep roots in american ideology and american masculine rugged individualist mm-hmm. ideology and storytelling whether it's hollywood westerns or any number of other sort of cultural artifacts there's a long and deep history of this idea of mm-hmm. the use of violence for personal redemption mm-hmm. it's, but girls and women don't have that narrative it's that's completely counter if a woman uses violence, it's completely counter to all the narratives in the culture about femininity. Now, it doesn't. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It can happen. It does happen, but it's very unusual. With boys and men, it's extraordinarily normative. Mm-hmm. And my argument has been: we just need to talk about. I'm not saying this is going to solve the problem, uh, you know, one in one fell swoop. But let's just re- bring it to the surface and talk about it. And let's have national dialogue about this. When we talk about gun violence. Let's talk about masculinity because it's not just the boys who are using violence to kill others. Like, and by the way, school shootings are horrific events, but they're not the daily event of gun violence in the United mm-hmm. States, which is a lot of young men, especially disproportionately young mm-hmm. men of color, shooting each other mm-hmm. on the streets and in arguments. So many of those arguments are about manhood. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like you dis- you disrespected me. I'm you know I mean I mean some of it's just literally if you if you like deconstruct the narratives of what, how some of these murders happen on the daily streets of the United States, mm-hmm. it's so much as it's about manhood. If you think about um, young men of color in the United States living in urban settings who want to be respected, right? They want to be respected, but they don't have access to the means of gaining respect that, say, men, men in middle and upper middle class have, like abstract concepts like respect based on workplace authority, financial power, political power, educational status, you know, they don't have those access to those abstract forms of power, but they want to be respected. Well, what is the quickest way that they can gain respect? It's violence. Mm -hmm. It's using their body or the prosthetic of a a weapon or a gun. All of a sudden, you could be somebody who's a nobody. All of a sudden, you're strapping on a Glock in your pocket and your boys are backing up on you. All of a sudden, you're a man. You're, You're asserting your manhood. And if, we, if we're not going to talk about that, about young men, and I work in my 20s, let me just say, you know, maybe I'm pulling, pulling rank a little bit to say that I'm, I'm not just a, 
an academic who's, you know, living in some ivory mm -hmm. tower. I was, I'm from a working class family. I came from a working class background myself. Yeah, I mean, I'm educated and all that, and I've done all the other things. And I, in my 20s, I worked as a counselor in a youth uh, detention center in Boston. So I was working as a, not as a law enforcement person, but as a counselor with young men who are locked up for everything short of uh, uh, felony rape and murder. But, but, but in other words, and it's, this isn't rocket science, not quantum physics, not that complicated. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is not just race. This is also white guys. It's like, the, to me, the heart of so much of what's happening. So, so to me, the biggest challenge, I have to say, this is more of a meta comment about this conversation and everything else. The biggest challenge that I've faced in my work for decades now and, I, and maybe this is a little overstated, it's just, is how do you get into the mainstream conversation with these ideas? Even, even though we have the technology today, mm. I don't think we have anything like the audience that we need. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, my pleas to the, to the men in the pro-feminist men's world, mm -hmm. white, men of color, global north, global south, is we gotta step up our game. Get mm. a, we have to figure out getting into more popular audiences and, and and that's not an easy thing i'm not saying it's easy i have been excluded my whole life even though even though i've been some somewhat successful relative to some others i'm still frustrated as hell about this and and i think i th but i think we have to think about that how do we how do we sh get short like video clips into you know into youtube into TikTok? i mean we can't use the old models the old models of intellectual engagement put together a workshop a lecture with a group of people at a university campus and we're like, we did a good job. Yes, we did. But then we turn on the, you know, turn on our computer and Jordan Peterson's just had a conversation with Joe Rogan and there's 15 million views for, jo for, for, for Jordan Peterson to sit there in his anti-feminist, anti-multiculturalist sort of hyper individualistic worldview is being sold to millions and millions of people. And we just did a good workshop for, you know, 40 people at the university of Oxford. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to know what to say to you, really, uh, Jackson, <laughs> apart from recognising the scale of the challenge that you've just outlined for us. I mean, it's, it is extraordinary, isn't it, really? Yeah. And, and I appreciate your... I mean, I'm obviously the American in this conversation. And, and uh, like the, the, the way that I'm talking, I appreciate you giving me the space to just go off. <laughs> oh, well, I, I suppose... The th well, the thing that occurs to me, really, after all that you've said, Jackson, is... You know, it's kind of a little bit overwhelming, really. And I feel like, oh, God, how do you how do you in particular maintain your sort of positivity and your mm. your hope in a in a world which is riven in so many different ways with so many different ghastly things going on? You know, it's tough. It's tough to maintain your own sort of mm -hmm. uh, I hesitate to say sanity, but I, I guess that's what I'm talking about, really, in in this world. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple a couple ways to respond to that, Sandy. One is. You might have heard the famous Gramsci quote, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yes, it's easy to if you if you're really thoughtful and 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 take it all in of what's happening, like climate change, for example. It's like I mean, we're talking about these issues and it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> in, in the coming decades, there could be like massive hundreds of millions of people, climate migrants and fascist political organizations defending borders against massive immigration from the coastlines. I mean, this is like way mm. scary stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So, we're, you know, so so on one hand, you could say that it's hard to be optimistic if you're if you're really sober in your assessment of the the stakes of what's happening uh, on one hand. But on the other hand, um, you have to be optimistic or or you've just conceded that it's all going to happen because 
there's no preordained path. Mm. So we all have uh, agency on some level. We yeah. can all affect some way. There's not a linear, certainly history is not work in linear fashion. Mm -hmm. And so even though there are some pathways you can identify. So I think we have, we have to just take the attitude of, okay, it's a struggle and it's a long-term struggle and it's, it's going to be frustrating, but we're part of a long process. And I think we've made a lot of progress. I mean, the, obviously this conversation and certainly my narration of this conversation, um, there's a lot of a lot of disturbing mm. realities that we have to uh, acknowledge. But I, but I think there's also progress. I mean, we've made enormous progress. And I, one of the things that I point to in my, in my work in the States here is, and I'm, I'm hardly unique in pointing to this, but I'll point to it, is the LGBTQ, you know, transformations that have been happening in my lifetime. And so, I, I mean, I grad, I, when I graduated from high school, back in the late 70s, <laughs> um, I had never met an openly gay person. Like, not even met... I'm not saying I didn't meet any people who are LGBT, but not anybody who was open about it. And and my son has kind of a completely different life experience. I mean, generationally, just like it's normalized, openly gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people in his you know family, his life, you know, his social networks and his school. There's been radical change. And one of the reasons the backlash has been so extreme is because we've made so much progress. Mm. And so, you know, the reason why you have a Trump is because you have all this progress. Mm. The reason why Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, in part, I mean, I, mean, I know there's other macro forces, but is because you had an anti-war movement in the 60s, an environmental movement, a, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, all these movements that are advancing justice and fairness and democracy. There's obviously interests that are threatened by that forward motion they're going to push back so i, I think we, we can overstate like i, I heard a, a, a smart guy a couple of years a few years ago when I, in a conversation say we shouldn't use the word resistance because uh, when donald trump was elected a lot of people started talking about mm -hmm. joining the resistance right and and, and you know has romantic uh you know it <laughs> harkens back to the resistance against the nazis and you know i'm i'm i resonate with that i love that on one level you know right but he was saying, don't call it the resistance because we're the majority. And if you say the resistance, you're buying into the idea that they're the majority and we're like the, the you know, the gorillas up in the mountains or something. <laughs> That's not the case. There's, there's a, in the, if you look at the polling numbers and you look at the data in the United States in terms of support for a whole range of social justice issues, there's really strong majority support for most of it including abortion rights. I mean, mm. really strong majority support for uh, basic feminist positions, basic racial and um, justice positions. I mean, the economic stuff, yes, it's, it sometimes gets complicated. But the question is, how do you translate majorities into electoral success? And how do you manipulate the system? And how, do, I mean, that's more complicated. But, but I think that's one of the ways to stay positive. The other thing is, I, I, we're part of movement and I feel like I'm not an individual. I mean, I am an individual, but I'm an individual who's part of a movement and I have lots of friends and lots of, you know, cohorts and, 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 and colleagues who are in the struggle, if you will. And, and you get support from them. And, and I work, you know, a lot of my work is with, you know, feminist women. And so feminist women have been fighting against the odds forever and, and taking on this, you know, the patriarchal sort of history, you know, the history of patriarchy. It's a pretty big, you know, antagonist. And, and yet they, they've changed the world and, and they continue to change the world. And so I, I feel like there's all mm -hmm. kinds of antecedents and support. And I think there's a ton of men who agree with a lot of what I've mm -hmm. said mm -hmm. here and, and what, a lot, what a lot of the other guests say on your mm -hmm. podcast. I mean, 
I, I work in really traditional, I mean, really traditional sectors often. I mean, not exclusively, but the military, the sports culture. I'm in red states, conservative states all the time. And there's, I think there's an awful lot of men who, if they hear a vision of quote unquote manhood that is more life affirming, that is more, um, you know, positive in a certain sense, it's not always a deficit narrative about mm. toxicity and horrible men doing horrible things, but, but strength and, and caring and, 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 and justice and fairness. I think these are, these are a lot of men can resonate with that. And I think, I don't, I think we're those of us on our sort of with our generalized politics. Um, I think we need to speak to that. The right says that, that the left and feminist and pro feminist men, etc., want to, um, make men soft and weak and and what we need is strong men and what the left is saying is we need weak men right and then they they invoke things like the the, the threat of china and you know china doesn't care about this kind of stuff and if we if we're going to be producing all these soft men china's going to run over the the world and take over the world i mean this is the kind of narrative you hear i'm exaggerating only slightly but but this notion of us on this pro-feminist side of the house are trying to make men weak and soft and i'll say i'll say I don't think that's what's really happening here. I think I want to be strong. I th I'm a man and I think I'm strong. And I have a son and I want him to be a strong you know, man. I don't think strength is what is the problem here. I think we want to be strong and we want men to be strong. The question is, how do you define strength? This is, a, this is the heart of it. How do you define strength? And if the only way you're going to define strength is the ability to impose your will on another person through force or the threat of force to dominate in a real cartoonish Trumpian way, then yeah, I think that we don't want that. But that's not the only definition of strength. Strength is also moral courage. Strength is social courage, is speaking up when you're, you know, when your voice is cracking because you're so nervous because somebody just made a really racist comment or a sexist or homophobic statement and he's your friend and you're like, he's your colleague and I'm like really nervous, but I have to say something. But you say it anyways. That's strength, right? Expanding the definition of strength gives men and young men a way to identify in a positive sense with, in that sense, of being a man. But but you're connecting it. We're connecting it to social justice, to fairness, to feminism, to racial justice, you know, economic justice. And I think if we do that, I think we have we'll have a lot of these young guys are who are who are willing to sign on. And that's why I remain positive. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, no, no, it's a great explanation. And I'm feeling a bit better, actually. Yeah. It's good to end on a hopeful note. <laughs> but, all, but also, you know, your, your challenge to us and to all our listeners is to do more, really, isn't it? Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I hope this podcast can contribute just a little way towards that. Well, yeah, but, but be ambitious. I'm, I'm urging you to be ambitious. I mean, mm. you are already doing incredibly good stuff, but... but I, I mean, I, I always say when people tell me they're, what they're doing, what their plans are, what they're trying to do, and when they say something that's kind of big picture, I'm always like, yeah, I really like the ambition. What do you, you know, because I think a lot of us, I just I have been a little too comfortable with a niche of influence. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, and I'm, I, I don't, I don't think that that's uh, warranted. I think that, I think the times warrant more than a niche and i think i think it, it warrants more ambition and and again not everybody not everybody's in a position to to make transformative change on a on a large scale but i think if we have a vision that it ha that we have to take our ideas and our approach 
to scale mm-hmm. and, and then creatively figure out how to do that. One of the ways to do that, by the way, is working with younger people. This sounds like an old guy talking, but younger people who have more, maybe Stephen is a, exhibit A. <laughs> and both of you guys are young guys as far as I'm concerned. But, but You'll be surprised, who have more <laughs> access to and more fluency in the new technologies of communication and discourse. Because I'm telling you, I'm in a position more than a lot of other people who travels all over the place and the world. And people will say to me, still in 2023, oh my God, I've never heard a man say these things. Oh my God. Mm. Especially when it comes to men's Mm. violence against women, right? Which is my central issue. Mm. And I think to myself, this is sad that in 2023, this person or these people have never heard a man say these things. Mm. It's pathetic. It's, and, and, I, and I'll say, we, we've been saying this stuff for 50 years. I mean, there's been men speaking out on this subject since the 70s. Mm. And, but who knows that? Mm. And they don't know it unless we figure mm. out how to crack the code. And so, so my plea is, yes, creative thinking about how to transmit these ideas to scale. And mm. I don't have all the answers. I've been rolling my ball up the hill for years trying to get published in the mainstream. Mm. But... I think the urgency of the times call for this. I think we have to we have to go the next step. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jackson, for for giving up your time and for all the amazing work you're doing and for your passion and uh, yeah, motivating us to do more. So, <laughs> yeah, thanks indeed, Jackson. Uh, hopefully, we'll see you in a sports stadium near us soon. <laughs> <laughs> Broadcasting to the millions. <laughs> well, believe me, I appreciate it. And again, let me say, I even though I'm. I feel like there's an urgency of like, mm-hmm. we have, sure. you have, you all have, the people that I work with, the women, the men, the others mm-hmm. have so much to offer. And we're losing, we're losing the struggle, not because we're, we don't have good idea. Mm-hmm. We're not losing the total struggle. I'm just saying we're, especially when it comes to this discourse about men, yeah. the, the success of Andrew Tate, mm-hmm. the fact that he's had billions of views that have millions and millions of young people, mm-hmm. young men, especially and boys in the UK, in the United States, in Australia, New Zealand, but all over the English speaking world, think Andrew Tate is speaking for them in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all the teachers and the parents who are upset about this and are frustrated about this, this should be like a total wake up call yeah. that we're not doing something correctly. And I don't think we should just accept that, that, that okay, there's going to be pushback against feminism and everything. No, I don't, think, I don't think so. Because I think some of what Andrew Tate says, and Jordan Peterson as well, again, they're not the same person, but there's overlap in what they're doing. One of the things that they're speaking to is, is a lot of young men and boys who feel a certain kind of void, who certain kind of helplessness mm. or um, loneliness or worthlessness and and if if all they're hearing to bolster their sense of themselves is from the Andrew Tates and the Jordan Petersons of the world, mm-hmm. and 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 we're only speaking to each other and not into that broader conversation, then I think we're we're giving up, we're giving up too much. Mm-hmm. And so I so I think part of what we're doing here and what I'm urging you to do, as you can hear, is is figuring out how to how to crack that code. So thank you, yeah. thank you for giving me the mm-hmm. platform today. Yeah. For thank that. you, thank you so much. Thanks for your challenge. Wow, Stephen, I feel uh, somewhat uh, bowled over by the force of uh, Jackson's presentation. Uh, how, how are you doing? 
<laughs> yes, absolutely the same. Yeah, he's quite a force of nature, isn't he? And it's, um, yeah, it certainly leaves an impact. I mean, one thing which I was thinking of, I mean, I was thinking about lots of different things over the course of that conversation, and I still am. But one thing which comes to mind is that I do think there's quite a bit of relevance, actually, to what he was saying to to the UK context. Obviously, like, very different cultures and things do work quite differently here. And perhaps it's it's more subtle here in terms of the kind of gender dynamics of politics that he was describing. But I was thinking about, you know, like the, um, the Conservative Party here in recent years and the success they've had in appealing to, like to white working class voters, especially, you know, men um, and things like the Brexit vote um, to leave the European Union. And I do think masculinity was a big factor there, right? Like this idea that we're like, we need to protect our country, you know, close the borders from these like these foreign invaders, which connects to our previous episode about migration. We need to somehow, you know, resist these like effeminate uh, European bureaucrats and leave the European Union. You know, all these kinds of ideas you do see. And, and also what he was saying about the kind of the use of so-called like culture wars, right? And how those how those are often very gendered, like in the US, the issue of abortion. Here in the UK, we see it around things like um, like the push against transgender rights, for example. Um, how how you know often these kinds of things, you know, they're not helping improve anybody's lives in any kind of material way, but they do serve as very effective distractions um, from what might actually be going on in people's everyday lives, such as in terms of a cost of living crisis, for example. Um, and clearly, it's a very effective political tool. Um, yeah, what did you make of the? Uh, what, what, what else came to your mind from yeah. what we discussed? Well, no, it's um, similarly interested in so many different issues, but uh, one of the things that struck me was his analysis of the sort of long history of how the Republican Party have managed to engage, stroke, capture white working-class male voters. And uh, I was thinking again about, about the UK context, you know, and I, I was uh, in college when Margaret Thatcher was elected. Her... Uh, signature policy was about uh, working class people being able to buy their own council homes, you know. Um, so mm -hmm. she she also recognised the importance of connecting with working class voters. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, he talked too about Reagan as, as a, an actor and a screen mm -hmm. uh, performer. Um, I mean, Thatcher was too. You know, mm, uh, mm. she was actually very good in the television age and, you know, she changed her hair, she dropped her voice. So in a way, there was a sort of correspondence and a, and a, and a cross, cross learning going on there between them. Mm. So I, I think mm. that's that's interesting. But but coming up to, you know, more the present day, I mean, yeah, you're right about the elements of, of Brexit. And I was thinking a bit more internationally as well about mm. how there were uh, definite correspondences between Trump's approach uh, mm. and his behaviour and that of someone like uh, Bolsonaro in, in mm. Brazil, you know, mm. and he had these has these three sons who are all part of his sort of patriarchal clan and they're very negative, denigrating about women, about gays, etc., etc. You know, so so that that's uh, a different style of it, but but very, very mm. similar. But you could mm. also look at uh, Modi's India, you know, and Hindu nationalism and the way that he's he's used his sort of strongman approach to uh, denigrate the Muslim community, to mm, covertly or not so covertly encourage attacks on Muslim communities, you know. Mm. So uh, I think I suppose what I'm saying is that his his overall analysis of the importance of gender, of masculinity, yes. of patriarchal power, mm. you know, and its relative invisibility in debates is absolutely crucial. 
really, yeah. to so many yeah. political um, situations. Yes, no, exactly. And the example you gave of Thatcher, I suppose, shows, doesn't it, that actually sometimes women can also uh, <laughs> project quite macho styles of leadership about strength and toughness. Because I was also thinking about in terms of Brexit, there is also a kind of a, a bit of a kind of colonialist thing there as well, right, that we need to like reassert British power on the global stage and um, and how you see women like Liz Truss have, have used those kind of that kind of language here in the UK. So I suppose also women can, like in the US as well, we see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene in the Republican Party. So yeah, I suppose... We, it's not just men who can appeal to these quite patriarchal ideas and uh, stereotypes in order to try and uh, attract voters, I guess, is it? Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that he really made me think about was the whole notion of podcasting and, you know, reaching an audience, you know, and he he was really encouraging us and and others, uh, not just through the podcast world, but, but through other media as well, to have this conversation with many, many more men uh, mm. about why why this all matters uh mm. what it is to be strong you know uh what is being a man today all about and uh mm. yeah uh i think i feel like i need to take that one away and think about it a bit um yeah. but i'd also be quite interested actually in the reaction of some of our listeners to mm. what he was saying around around that theme as well you know yeah Yes, like if you have comments on that or, or questions, feel free to email us at nowmen at gmail.com because I think it is a challenge, isn't it, as you say, Sandy, because on the one hand, I totally agree with him that we need to be doing whatever we can to get these ideas out there more and we have a responsibility there. But on the other hand, you know, as much as anything, I'm just quite a sheepish, shy person. So I don't particularly, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure what I think about that, really. And, and also there are difficult questions about how can we as men make sure we're not taking up too much space in these debates as well. So it is a, it's definitely a dilemma. Um, yeah. Well, and also different cultural presentations as well. Yes. You know, he mm. is very sort of, he, he recognises himself, very US yeah. in his, his style of presentation. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, I feel that people operate differently in, in the UK, generally speaking. Yeah, yeah, you might need a different approach depending on your context. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but anyway, we probably should uh, should stop there, I guess, shouldn't we? <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so much, everybody, as always, for listening. And uh, do subscribe if you haven't already, wherever you get your podcasts. Share, share Now and Men with your friends, and we shall speak to you again soon. Yep, cheerio. Until next Thanks time. Thanks so much. <laughs> Cheers. Bye.